I hope you have your Bibles this morning and that you will open with me to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. This morning, I'm going to share with you a sermon that I wrote for myself. We'll come back to that a little later. You may remember that last week we were with Jesus and three of his disciples up on a mountain. Jesus took Peter and James and John with him up on a high mountain. And while they were there, these disciples saw Jesus revealed in a way like never before. They saw a glimpse of his glory. They recognized in a new way that he's God. They learned something about why he came and about his role in the plan of salvation that God's working out. If you're with us, hopefully that brings to mind some of where we were last week. We were up on that mountain, gazing at the glory of Christ, being reminded why he came and that he, as God, the word of God in flesh, he can be trusted. As we come back to Mark 9 this morning, we're picking back up where we left off. But no longer on the mountain, but instead heading down the mountain. Heading from this otherworldly experience back to the realities of life. That's the scene as we come to our passage this morning. The return from the mountain back to life. If you have your Bibles, we'll start reading in verse 14 of chapter 9. When they came down to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing with them, and immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to Jesus and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming from his mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? He said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if I can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you. Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples said to him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to him, this kind cannot be driven out by anything 
but prayer. The grass withers and the flower fades. Nations rage and kingdoms totter. But the word of our God will stand forever. And the reign of our God will last forever. May God help us as we look to his word. And may we be reminded that we can trust him. My guess is that you've had an experience like this. You've attended a Christian conference. You've gone to a spiritual retreat. And you've come home in awe of God with your faith at a fever pitch. Maybe you've read a book that's reminded you of some particular truths about God. And for a time, you see everything differently. Your trust in God is soaring. Maybe not at the same level, but my hope is that to some extent, you leave here each Sunday with a renewed sense of God's love, his mercy, his power. And that when you leave here each Sunday, your strength and spirit's a little bit renewed. Certainly my hope. My point is this. I think most of us know what it's like to have moments of clarity. Moments of renewed faith. Those times when you know beyond a shadow of doubt that God is good. That he's sovereign. That he cares for you in particular. That you can trust him no matter what life brings. I think for most of us, these are truths that we never stop believing. But I think for all honest, we have times when believing is harder. Seasons when we don't pray as fervently because we wonder if it's helpful. Times when doubt is more pronounced. To use a metaphor, there are times when we're on the mountaintop and we see the glory of God and we are convinced of who he is but we're also familiar with life in the valley where faith can wane and grow weak. As we transition from where we were last week in Mark 9, up on that mountain, seeing the glory of God and getting this view of Jesus, and now come to this text where you are back among people of weak faith. I think the contrast provides for us a good reminder that we must take the view of Jesus for who he is that doesn't change and bring it with us into life where things are hard and faith is tested. So we think again about last week, about that mountain. We talked about how the presence of God in the scriptures often finds people up on mountains. The best example is Moses on the Mount Sinai. He's up there on that mountain in the presence of God, receiving from God himself the law. Getting a glimpse. Moses got a, a glimpse of the glory of God, and it changed him. But do you remember what happened to Moses when he came down the mountain? Comes down the mountain carrying tablets written on by the finger of God. But do you remember what he finds at the bottom? What he arrived to? He arrived to a people worshiping a calf made of gold. He came down after being in the presence of God to find a people who had forgotten God, who had turned their hearts to idols. And there's some similarities between that and what we see here in Mark 9. Jesus, Peter, James, and John have been on the mountain. They've seen the glory of God. They've heard the very voice of God. 
And now they return to be met by a people marked by small faith. The contrast is significant, and I hope you'll feel a bit of the jolts between the passages. From glory of God revealed to how weak faith can become. We've already read the story. It's a story of a demon-possessed boy, a desperate father, and weak, imperfect disciples. As we go through the story, I want to highlight four things that I think this story helps us consider. It goes from a bit hopeless to hopefully great hope. First, as we look at the story at the bottom of the mountain, we see the weakness of men and the fallen nature of our world. Second, we see the common temptation that we all share to insufficient faith. Third, we see the power of honest faith and sincere dependence on God. And lastly, we see the ability and the willingness of Jesus to help all those who call on him. It's where we're headed, but to get there, we need to get back into the story. So picture, I hope, you'll join me in picturing Peter, James, and John with Christ coming down the mountain. We're told that as they arrive, they arrive to a crowd of people. They're looking for the other nine disciples, and they find them in the midst of the crowd. Maybe working their way through the crowd, they find the the nine disciples in an argument with scribes. Now, to a certain extent, this is not an unusual scene. We are used to seeing the disciples in Christ on one side and the scribes on another. But the contrast that they walked into from the mountain to here we are again. There's this argument going on, but we see that as Jesus arrives and people see him, every eye turns towards him. We read in verse 15 that when they saw Jesus, they were amazed. And we're not told in particular why they're amazed, but I get this sense that it's just this ongoing awe of Christ. That when he was gone, there was something lacking. There was a void. The reality is these people didn't come to the disciples primarily because of them. They became because they were associated with Jesus. And what we're going to see is that there's one in particular man who came to the disciples hoping for the power of Jesus and did not find it. So Jesus arrives and all eyes turn to him. And he asks the question, verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? I tried to figure it out this week, who he's addressing. Is he asking the scribes why he's arguing with the disciples? Or is he asking the disciples why he's arguing with the scribes? We don't know for sure. What we do know is that neither group answers. He asks a question, and the first person to respond in any way is this father. Verse 17, someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it, it throws him down, he foams. He grinds his teeth, he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and and they weren't able. Maybe this was the source of the dispute. The scribes ridiculing the disciples for not being able to fulfill the requests. We don't know. What we do know is that we've become accustomed to stories like these. People who come to Jesus in desperation. 
So we've worked our way through the Gospel of Mark together. We've seen a leper. We've seen those who were lame. We've seen those who were blind, all coming to Jesus. In this case, we see a father, a man whose son is possessed by a demon. And can I encourage you? You know the story. You've heard it. Can I encourage you to think about that father in flesh and what it would be like to have a son in this condition? A son who can't express himself because he's mute. So for all the pain he's experiencing, he, does, he can't speak about it. He has these episodes where he seizes. He's thrown to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. His body becomes stiff. And after it's over, he can't talk about it. A painful, scary, frustrating life. What we learn later in the passage is that this is not a recent occurrence. It's something that's been going on for a long time. Verse 21, Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, since childhood. And it's often, listen to this, it, it casts him into the fire. Casts him into water to destroy him. This is not a recent development. It's been happening for years. And we see that it's not just an inconvenience. It's a life-threatening danger. We're told it's a demon that's in him. And as he comes close to a fire, the, the demon will cause him to see so that he will fall into the fire. When he's by water, he'll be caused to fall in. Can you think about, as a, as a parent, how helpless and desperate and scared that must leave you all the time? How often this father must have had to rescue him, his son from drowning? How many times did he risk his own safety to pull his son out of the fire? How many times he attended his wounds? The constant, daily fear of what would happen next. This is a man who's desperate for help. The disciples were there. And this man had heard, these men have cast out demons before. We go back to Mark 6. We remember Jesus sent them out, gave them authority over demons. They, he hears of their power. He goes to them, but they're not able to help. Now, if we just stop here for a second and take in everything we've considered up to this point, I think we're reminded of the weakness of men and the fallen nature of our world. We can start just with that scene, that argument. Just a reminder of the, the discord that is in our world. We think about the disciples coming down from the most amazing event of their life to rejoin their friends in the midst of an argument. It's like reading your Bible in the morning and then opening Twitter, turning on cable news. That's small, though, compared to what this man's experiencing. We can feel the weight, the hurt that he's experiencing. And while you can empathize with him and feel the pain of his life, we could probably also go around the room and all of us have stories we could tell. You all have places in your life where you feel the effects of the brokenness of the world. We all watched the news this week, shook our heads wondering what in the world is happening. 
And you've come in this morning and you may be feeling weary, overwhelmed, scared. And I want to encourage you. As we come to this passage, we see the weakness of men. We see our inability. We see the destruction of sin in our world, but we also see hope. See, when human hope is exhausted, Jesus brings renewed hope. We'll get there. But first, we see that Jesus has some strong words for those with small faith. This man has come. He's poured out his heart before Jesus. And then listen to what Jesus says next. He answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Again, we have a situation where it's hard to know exactly who's being addressed. Is Jesus speaking to the scribes? The ones who have been arguing with the disciples? Is he talking to the crowd? There's a strong argument for this because three other places in Mark, he refers to a crowd as a, a generation. And here he says, oh, faithless generation. Maybe he's speaking to the crowd. Or is he talking to his disciples? After all, they're the ones who've been unable to help this boy. We can make a case for any of the three. Maybe he's speaking to everyone in general, but I do tend to think that Jesus' primary focus is on his disciples. And the reason I came to that conclusion is because this has been the ongoing theme up to this point in Mark. Jesus recognizing and calling out the weakness of faith among his disciples. Their faith has been a roller coaster. And Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that very soon he's going to leave and these are the men who are going to be left to carry out his mission. And they've just had a trial run. He was gone. And they were left. And they demonstrated weak faith. What we see here in the response of Christ is holy frustration. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I appreciated this reminder from a great 19th century pastor. He said, we never read that Jesus is wearied by the poor. He's not wearied by the sick, saying, how long shall I be with you or how long should I bear with you? We never read necessarily that he's weary of human ignorance, but he's greatly wearied by unbelief. We see that in his response, this holy disappointment from Jesus when his disciples have been with him and seen his displays of power, and yet their faith is so weak. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but first, can I encourage you to consider that we are like them? We know the temptation to small faith. We know the doubt that comes probably don't say it out loud maybe in your home but not in church but we all know what it's like to live with this undercurrent of anxiety worry and fear we have situations in our lives that are hard overwhelming and we forget that we have a God that we can trust and this is a pattern we see throughout scriptures 
The people of God forgetting his goodness, his care, his power. As I was looking at that, that, this phrase from Jesus, rebuking the people, how long should I be with you? How long do I bear with you? I was reminded of Numbers chapter 14, God in conversation with Moses. Numbers 14, 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I've done among them. What had he done? Well, he delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They had walked across the Red Sea on dry land, walls of water on either side. They had been fed and provided for in the wilderness. And when they didn't like the food, he gave them a different menu. Now they find themselves at the border of the promised land. And yet as they stand there at the border of the land that's been promised to them, they're fearful and they think we can never go in. The enemy is too big. Numbers 14, verse 1. All the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night after hearing the testimony of the witnesses. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What's happening? Well, after all they've seen, they have weak faith. They don't believe that God can finish what he started. Like he didn't already know who was going to be living in the land when they got there. Like he didn't have a plan for giving them what he said he would give them. They doubted. And we do it also. Confession. I do it also. I wrote this sermon for myself. We have to hear the words of God. How long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I've given them? I've shown them that I'm faithful. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? If you're honest, maybe you, like me, can hear these words spoken to us because of our small faith. Thankfully, the story doesn't stop here. I told you there's four things. We've seen the first two. First, the weakness of men and the fallen nature of the world. We see that in the disputes and in the struggle that this boy and his father endured. Second, we see the temptation to insufficient faith. We've seen that in the disciples. Third, we see something that begins to bring hope. The power of true faith and of sincere dependence on God. Look at verse 20. They brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him immediately... It convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? He said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. Now, I just want to mention a couple of things about this. We can't walk through every line, but 
couple things to notice. First, don't miss the way the demon responds to the presence of Christ. The demon has been there, but we're told that as Jesus draws near, he begins to convulse and shake the boy. Similar how to if I tell my boys not to do something, they do it as fast as they can before I can get to them. The demon knows he's about out of time. He takes one last stand. He pushes the boy into one more horrific seizure. But what we see so clearly is he recognizes the authority of Jesus. He believes what Jesus can and will do. The demons believe and are terrified. What about us? That demon knew who Jesus was. Also notice this. Notice the compassion of Jesus. This one's a little more subtle. But I think it's worth pointing out that Jesus doesn't immediately heal. Instead, he engages conversation. He asks a question that allows the man to share more about the situation. I believe he shows interest in this man's pain. He listens as the man describes the severity of all they've endured. Think about this, church. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, revealed as the glory of God, the Son of God. But he comes down so he can stand in front of a father and hear his story of pain. The same Jesus comes to the weak and poor and broken. And this, isn't this the story of the incarnation? That God himself would come and be face to face with suffering and not only see it, but endure it himself? Jesus is not indifferent toward the pain of your life. He comes, he sees. We see compassion as Jesus listens to this father. And then after hearing the story expressed, the man explains what's happened, and then he, he takes his opportunity to, to express his plea. If you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. It's a man who understands his need. There's a reason that he's come to Jesus. He's heard of the power of Christ. He knows that Jesus has healed others. He has cast out demons. He stands before Jesus, and he asks honestly and sincerely for compassion and for help. Jesus is compassionate and he is going to help. But first he points out something about the man's request. He does it in a different tone than he used with his disciples. This is different than 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long will I bear with you? He doesn't take that tone with his father. But he does point out a fault in the way the man asked the question. Jesus said to him, if you can. I think there should be a question mark there. If you can? All things are possible for the one who believes. It's not a harsh rebuke, but Jesus draws attention to the fact that the man had a qualifier. I was reminded how different this is from the way the leper back in chapter one approached Jesus. 
The leper came to Jesus and said, if you will, heal me. Heal me. What's he saying? I know that you can. The question is not your ability. The question is, will you? But this man's request is different. He has the qualifier, if you're able. If you can. Jesus points out the qualifier and takes the opportunity to continue teaching on the importance of faith. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. You've asked if I can. All things are possible. Now let's pause for a second because this is a verse that I think we can be tempted to abuse in two different ways. I want to give you some words of caution as you think about this verse. First, consider that some have used this verse to say there's only one reason someone may not get what they pray for, and that's a lack of faith. If you're not healed, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you're not financially successful, it's because you didn't have enough faith. If you're not living your best life now, it's because your faith is small. I hope you recognize that is an abuse of the words of Jesus. He hasn't promised to heal every sickness in this life. He hasn't promised that greater faith equals greater bank accounts. The statement from Jesus is not a promise that God will give us whatever we desire as long as we believe big enough. But at the same time, we must not abuse this verse in the other direction. Let us not fail to believe the words of Jesus for fear of sounding like someone else who's wrong. This verse is a call to believe that God is always able, that nothing is impossible with him, and that as we come to him with our requests, he never fails to answer out of lack of ability. With God, all things are possible. And because he can do all things, we can come to him with confidence, knowing that he can accomplish anything he wills. Over and over in Mark, we see the call to greater faith and the reminder that nothing is impossible with God. Remember back in chapter 5, Jairus comes to Jesus. His daughter is sick. He's asking Jesus to come and to heal her, but before they can even go, word comes that she's died. Jairus is tempted to give up hope, but Jesus says to him, do not fear, only believe. In chapter 10, Jesus is talking to a rich man. Jesus talks about how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples ask him then, who can be saved? Jesus looks at them and says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Over and over we see this, the importance of knowing these two things. Nothing's impossible with God. And he expects his people to approach him with confident faith in his ability. Here Jesus has expressed his frustration with the lack of faith shown by his disciples. And now here's a father with a great need. But he comes to Jesus with insufficient faith. So Jesus admonishes him. All things are possible to the one who believes. 
And it's in response to this statement that I think we get possibly the most beautifully honest cry for help in all of Scripture. Immediately, the father, recognizing what Jesus has told him, he cries out, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. It's a confession of faith and a cry for help. He says, I believe that you can, but at the same time, help my unbelief. And these things are not contradictory. The existence of one does not exclude the possibility of the other. I think for honest, we all know that our faith is never perfect. Even on our best days, we are people of insufficient faith. This is our common experience. But hear this. I want you to hear this. Don't let your imperfect faith exclude you from coming to God with your requests. Instead, come to him like this father, confessing what faith you have, asking for greater faith, and bringing your request before the God who is able. I believe. Help my unbelief. Calvin wrote in reference to this verse that if we were to take an assessment of the church, we would find few with outstanding faith, few who have a moderate portion, and very, very many who have but a small measure. It's probably true. But oh, that we would move up that ranking from those of small faith to those of outstanding faith. But if you still find yourself in the small faith category, would this be your prayer? God, I believe to help my unbelief. It's a prayer that's a reminder of our frailty. It reminds us that we are the ones who need help from God, not the other way around. Another commentator said, true faith is always small and inadequate. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantum of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has, when he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. Don't think you have to work up in yourself faith. Faith is always a gift. So come to Jesus in faith. Confess the faith you have and ask for greater faith. Maybe you're here this morning, you know your weakness. And maybe your doubts have kept you from asking God for help. I remind you, nothing is impossible with God. You can come to him. We see here the power of honest faith and sincere dependence on God. We also see that God is able and willing to answer. Verse 25. Jesus saw that a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus, he took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. We should be glad that the story ends the way it does. Was the father's faith perfect? No. What we see here is that Jesus accepted his plea. The man confessed his faith. He admitted his weakness. Jesus heard him and he answers. 
We see in verse 25, a crowd starts running, and we're told that as Jesus sees the crowd running, he rebukes the spirit, which I think is a way of saying Jesus isn't here to perform for the crowds. As the crowds come, he finishes the work that he's begun. He commands the spirit, and the spirit must obey. We see this over and over. Nothing stands against the command of Jesus because nothing is impossible with God. No spirit can resist his will. Do you believe this? That whatever Jesus commands can happen? Will happen? Over the next couple of months, we're going to be reading through the Gospels. If you're following with us in the reading plan, between now and the beginning of March, we'll read through all four of the Gospels. And as we read over and over, we are going to read of the miracles of Jesus. Healing of the sick, casting out of demons, raising of the dead. And I want to encourage you, as you come across these miracles of Jesus, can I encourage you, church, don't read too fast. Don't allow yourself to miss over and over the proof of what God can do. We've acknowledged already our weakness. We saw the inability of the disciples to do anything on their own. But every time we see a miracle of Jesus, we have a reminder that things in our world are not right and that we cannot fix them, but that Jesus has the power to change everything. So as you read of the miracles of Christ, be reminded he is able. And maybe there's parts of your life where you are questioning whether or not God will do what he has said he can do. As you read through the Gospels, every time you come to one of those miracles, remember, God is able. The question is, will we come to him in faith? Will we believe that he can do what he says he can do? As we read the miracle of Jesus, we should be driven to our knees Admitting that what seems impossible to us is possible with God. As we end the passage, we see another reminder of the need for dependence, the need for faith. The last two verses, there's a change of location. The disciples go away with Jesus to a house. And we've seen this now. This is our third time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus takes his disciples. We're told they go into a house and they have a private conversation. Verse 28, when they had entered the house, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast it out? Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. The disciples are confused. They're probably embarrassed. This man had come to them with a need. Before they'd been able to do this, they had cast out demons before. Now this man comes and everyone's watching and they couldn't do it. Why couldn't we do it? What Jesus tells them, I think what he's reminding them of is that we can't do anything in our own strength. We always need his power working through us. And the way we access his power is through prayer. Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is our confession that we need God. It's our humbling ourselves before him and admitting that we need him. We've talked about the importance of faith, and now we hear the importance of prayer, which is a demonstration of faith. In both cases, we're reminded, trust that he can do it. 
Yet in both cases, we can be tempted towards reading this passage with an inward focus. Okay, I've, I've read this passage, and what I've read is, if I have enough faith, and if I pray enough, and you've missed the point, it's about your faith in God. It's about your dependence on him and going to him in prayer because he is the one who is able. And when we try to do things in our own strength, we will fail. I wrote this message for myself. I'm guilty, maybe you are too. Of thinking we can manipulate the situation by our own will. And not having faith in God who says, trust me. Come to me. Faith is about reliance on God. Prayer is our admitting of our need of him. The reason the disciples couldn't help this man is because they were trying to work in their own power instead of in the power of God. It was a sign of insufficient faith. You've probably been guilty. I've confessed that I have been. As a church, we've probably been guilty of insufficient faith, of not enough reliance on God. As a church, we desire good things. We want to reach our neighbors, our community with the gospel. We want to see the church strengthened and unified. And yet we may be guilty at times of trying to do these things in our own strength. And we ask God, why couldn't we do it? These things can only be accomplished through prayer. When we don't see the results we want, we ask why. The response of God is that these things only happen through his power. We must go to him on our knees. We must serve him in faith. Perhaps it starts with the confession, I believe. Help my unbelief. We believe that you can use us. Help our unbelief. We believe you can bring more people to salvation through our witness in 2021 than you did in 2020. Help our unbelief. We believe you can change us and give us greater joy in you, regardless of the circumstances. Help our unbelief. We believe you can make us more obedient, that you can make us more like Christ. Help our unbelief. The list goes on. I think this is an important passage for us to hear and to take to heart. We need to take the vision of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, that display of who he is, take that confidence of who Jesus is and bring it into the situations of life. To be a people who believe that God can work in us. To cry out to him in faith, asking him to accomplish his will in us. I hope you desire these things. I hope you believe that God can. All things are possible to those who believe. May we confess. We believe. God, would you help our unbelief?